Hey there, this is the MIT Comparative Media Studies and Writing Podcast. I'm Andrew Whitaker, and welcome to a new school year. Today is September 14th, 2018, two weeks into the semester, and last night we kicked off something new, a series within a series. For well over a decade, we've hosted talks on Thursdays called Colloquium, when our community gets together to hear from scholars and artists from here at MIT and elsewhere. This semester, Professor Jim Parody has set a theme for four colloquia. He's called it the Civic Arts Series. It's helping us partner finally with our downstairs neighbor in the program in art, culture, and technology. So, ready to mark your calendars? Along with ACT's Marissa John, Professor Parody has invited Daniel Bacieri for October 4th, talking about storytelling through performance. John herself is in the October 18th slot. She's best known for advocating for care workers via a station wagon road trip a documentary story that aired on PBS. And then Myron Dewey on November 15th. Dewey is an indigenous journalist, educator, and filmmaker. He'll talk about his multimedia work at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And the fourth event in the series was last night's with Eric Lawyer. You'll hear him introduced in a moment. If you're local to Boston and Cambridge, or you know you'll be around on those dates, we hope you'll join us. You can find times and locations of those and other upcoming events at cmsw.mit.edu. It's part of a new series that's taking a fresh look at uh, digital art and civics and the way in which many of these different areas are coming together with a uh, very interesting series of uh, impossibilities. And this is Marissa Moran-Jan, my uh, collaborator on this series. And, uh, so, um Jim first asked me to be one of the speakers, and then I was very enthusiastic about um, bridging the departments, which historically have had a connection, um, and the past few years has been dormant, and so um, I think we're equally enthusiastic about um, the obvious connection between public art and civility and so forth. Um, and just to say a few words about um, art, culture, technology, the department um, that I went to grad school 10 years ago in, and now I teach in, said, was founded in 1967 as a very utopic moment when artists were thinking about how to um, create work and present work in non-traditional contexts, how they can collaborate with scientists and, get, and communicate work in radical new ways. And so um, this series um, and the speakers involved in the series represent that trajectory and inter critical interrogation of um, who we're making work for and why. Uh, I'm going to be quick because uh, we have a fairly s uh, packed schedule. <coughs> there is a reception after the event tonight on the third floor, so if you have enough stamina to go up and have something to drink and uh, something to eat, you can come up and join us. Uh, I'd just like to thank Fox Harrell for introducing Eric Lawyer, who is our speaker tonight, uh, and I'll let Fox. Uh, say a few things about Eric's work. Uh, Fox and Eric have known each other for many years. Uh, and I'd also like to thank uh, 
Catherine D'Ignazio, who is uh, a professor at uh, Emerson College, and she's uh, one of the people who did the first series. This is the second of a series. Uh, there was a series uh, four or five years ago on civic arts that was uh, very interesting and well received, much smaller than this series. Uh, and this series is part of the ongoing colloquium for comparative media studies, uh, uh, the graduate program. And so there are weekly meetings. There'll be four more, uh, three more of these uh, special uh, events in, in the media and civic arts series uh, this term. Uh, I think I've thanked everybody except Center for Civic Media, which has also helped fund this. And I should. Uh, Give a special thanks to Mauricio Cordero, who did the comic art and the wonderful posters for this whole series, which uh, have really made it uh, special. Um, so we'll have two respondents after the talk, after the third talk, and uh, after that we'll have some Q&A, and I believe there'll still be time for some refreshments. Thank you. Fox? So I'm really pleased to have this opportunity to introduce Eric Lawyer to you. Yeah, so Eric is a preeminent and award-winning media artist and interactive story creator. As Jim mentioned, I've had the honor of knowing him for a number of years. And I like to describe his work you know, the way that he does. You know, so if you look, up, you look him up online, you'll find that he describes stories that you play like instruments and instruments for telling stories. And I think this is quite true, as you'll see as he goes through his talk. So just to give you a sense of uh, you know, who he is in terms of his professional work, he's had a few different uh, uh, roles over the years. So probably at least some number of people here have heard of Scalar. I mean, this is a system that's used in academic menus, over 10,000 registered users, an open source tool for publishing scholarly works. Eric is the creative director of the group responsible for Scalar. You know, so that's uh, one uh, kind of, I think, uh, a major academic engagement with his work. Also, the Vectors Journal. You know, this was a pioneering experimental online journal that would bring people together for workshops, academics, and digital media designers to, to create interactive versions of their work in intense uh, kind of uh, workshops during the summers. And so I think uh, uh, I mean, Eric was also a creative director of this uh, journal as well. That did very groundbreaking work for new modes of, uh, of uh, scholarship. Yeah, but beyond this, he also does work, you know, his own expressive work. You know, so he's the founder and director of Opportune, creating and publishing storytelling apps. I mean, these have charted nationally, internationally, I mean, collectively garnering over 500,000 downloads. You know, so when you think about interactive stories that have hit popular culture outside of the typical, you know, a lot of times people say interactive story, popular culture, they think uh, something like uh, video games. I mean, these are interactive stories on applications uh, that have garnered such a huge number of users and, and their experimental formats. He's a developer of uh, Panoply, uh, an authoring tool that combines visual language of comics and, uh, and Unity game engine. And, and you know, just these are a few examples that just suggest that his work has spanned from building platforms for others to use, new forms of gesture-driven interactive story. We worked on a National Endowment for Humanities project around how gestures can push stories uh, forward, interactive comics, large-scale academics, 
He's really spanned the gamut of kind of digital media production. Now, when I first personally encountered his work, that was about uh, 10 years ago, I was completely blown away. And so there was a system that we'll speak to you some about today called uh, Ruben and Lullaby, and so I won't say too much uh, about it, but just this idea you know, that the work was so poignant and emotion-laden uh, in a way that was intrinsic to your interactions within the work and played like an instrument, like I said before, was, you know, was completely striking and a novel to me. Another standout project of his is uh, Blue Velvet, and uh, this is a collaboration with academic scholars for Vector's Journal, where his design sensibilities capture, for me, not only the kind of pain of the hurricane between a tragedy in New Orleans, but also there's a kind of uh, impressive magical moment at some point during this uh, work, because it begins to describe, through the interactive uh, metaphor, the murky human-driven causes of the disaster, discrimination, economic policies, and so forth. And so, for me, this place where interaction design can begin to suggest something about social engagement, impact, and uh, justice through a visual metaphor, that's uh, completely striking. You should go look up uh, his work, uh, Blue Velvet. You probably will find the David Lynch film, but this is a different, uh, uh, different and outstanding Blue Velvet. The creator of the, uh, and for me, to think that the creator of this kind of poignant and nuanced works also, I mean, just last year, I picked up the New York Times and they read an article, uh, let's reimagine the way that we engage with the music digitally. We used to use liner notes, we used to, uh, and, and Charles Mingus had his psychotherapist write his liner notes, you get all this kind of insight about him when you read them. We don't really do that much uh, anymore. Maybe you're on Wikipedia, you know, but you miss out all the kind of tactile uh, sensation. Well, uh, as an entrepreneur, Eric has also done a work that was written up in the New York Times about reinvigorating this, you know, so that as you listen to music, all the context and information and history can visually come to the fore you know, through this kind of work. So completely a different type of striking work. And then finally, I would just like to say that he's someone whose work I deeply admire myself, that I learn from and am inspired by in some way and having a kind of ongoing creative practice as someone that I would like to be. And, uh, and, uh, you know, so I just want to finally say that he is a forged such a unique path as a creative producer. I'm so pleased that he has agreed to come and share his work with you. So please, let's warmly welcome that. Well, thank you so much, Fox, for that introduction. Um, I've actually told people that I've wanted to be you on occasion as well, so the feeling's mutual. Um, all right, let me shift over to my presentation here. Uh, oops, that's the last slide. We know what the first slide. Okay. Um, so again, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you, James and Fox and Marissa, for making this possible and for the invitation. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Um, so obviously, as you hear, I've had a kind of long-playing interest in digital storytelling. And that really leads me to my topic tonight, which is making stories unstuck. Which kind of begs the question, well, are stories stuck? I mean, aren't we kind of drowning in stories? Stories are everywhere. Um, yes, that's true. It doesn't feel like stories are stuck. But I think if we look closely, the story, the narrative, the thing that's crafted by a human for other humans, with internal structure and a kind of integrity of design, it's still tough for our narratives in the digital space to make a leap from one platform to another without some kind of manual translation happening. 
And so for me, I define kind of stuckness for the purposes of this talk um, as a story that can't get out of the platform that it was conceived in without some help, without some manual labor, sometimes a great deal of manual labor. So why should we care to unstick stories? Um, I think one of the reasons is actually just quality of life. Um, if we find a story meaningful, we should be able to bring it with us in all our digital contexts um, without necessarily having to purchase separate products or uh, translate manually through a laborious process. We should be able to build on remix without having to transcribe ourselves. Um, and maybe it's because we're kind of too in love with our own technology, but I think more likely because the forces of platform ownership and exclusivity are very strong. As designers and producers, we seem to be reluctant to admit and act on the fact that our digital narratives have value apart from the interfaces in which they originally debuted. So I'll give an example from my own work. Um, this is a project called uh, Public Secrets that was done for the Vectors Journal. Um, I was one of the, I always like to clarify, I'm one of two creative directors for the Vectors Journal. Uh, Reagan Kelly is the other creative director who uh, did some excellent work, and our work is in very different modes. Um, this project is a series of testimonies um, from women that Sharon recorded, um, who are women who are incarcerated in California. Um, she posed as a legal advocate. You're not supposed to be able to go in and make these recordings, but she went ahead and did it. And the piece is comprised of several hundred audio files that are the testimonies of these women that are also interwoven with theoretical reflections, Sharon's own words, um, and other elements. So I'll let uh, a little bit of video run in the background as this is going forward. Is that happening? Okay, great. So um, the piece is, the, the testimonies are contextualized in a kind of grid structure. Um, as you move through the piece, um, headlines kind of excerpting pieces from each testimony appear in this grid and they move and change and uh, appear in different contexts from biographical uh, to theoretical to stories about life inside and life outside the prison. So I'm very proud of the design I'm proud of the impact that it's helped the testimonies to have, but I have to admit, if the design disappeared and the testimonies remained, the piece would still have tremendous value, right? The, the value is really in the words of the women. If the testimony disappeared and the design remained, there would be some value, but the value would be greatly diminished. But currently, these testimonies are stuck in this interface. They can't get out. Um, and you might say, well, this is a piece that's done in Flash, so just don't do things in Flash, right? Flash is a proprietary technology. It's bound to die at some point, so don't do that. But I actually would argue that it's not really an issue of Flash, because we could have produced this piece in completely open standards with uh, technology that's not proprietary, and it still would be quite difficult for a layperson experiencing this piece to take these stories out and bring them into the rest of their lives. Uh, it's not a trivial task. You probably have to be a developer um, in order to do it. So even though we have excellent resources like the piece Acid Free Bits um, by Nick Montfort, Noah Wardrip Fruin, this excellent uh, set of recommendations for digital creators about how to create work that will last, that will ensure that at least in some form or fashion, it can be resurrected or uh, ported to a new format or made accessible in some way or another. Um, this should be required reading, I think, for everybody creating in digital. Um, it's not necessarily an issue of preservation I'm talking about, because even if you followed all these recommendations, 
Um, if the original platform were to fall out or to, or to disappear in some way, you would still probably need to be a developer to access the data um, and, and, the, and the content of those stories and to make use of it. But what about the average user who is just interested in circulating a digital narrative, not just in the future, um, after some technological apocalypse, but today, right now? Um, not just within the platforms in which these stories were created, but across and between those platforms. I think in some ways we can look at it as a question of our problem of human-centered design. Um, looking at how to center our narrative efforts on the people experiencing the stories instead of the techniques that we're using to deliver them, which all too often becomes the focus, myself included. A human-centered approach to storytelling recognizes that we experience stories in a linear way. In fact, we can experience them in no other way and would respect that linearity. Yes, in the code, these stories are attached to objects and agents and they're spatialized in 3D worlds, but we still experience them one piece at a time in a sequence. And even in the, the biggest AAA games, it can still be surprisingly difficult to find a linear narrative account of exactly what's happened to us in this world. Uh, many large scale story games will have a kind of journal that'll keep track of what you do, but uh, how many of us actually will boot up the console, load the program, find our, our saved game, and just read that journal? Um, even though we might have a desire to experience that story again in our playthrough, um, that's not really a really optimal way of, of reading that content. Why can't I get it as an ebook? Why can't I get it in some other format that I'm more likely to engage with? And so this is an example of ways in which I think we don't really prioritize as creators how these stories could live and how the user's experience and engagement with those stories um, could live beyond the original, the original encounter. So as a case study in kind of what this might be like um, if we were to enable stories in these ways, I'm going to turn to our old friend Hamilton. As an uh, example of the power of unsticking digital narrative, unstuck stories, so if we look at Hamilton, it's a text that in some ways, in many ways, has been optimized for digital distribution. Um, this is from an article in Fast Company. The cast album is actually key to this. So it says, Ticket Scarcity has motivated creator Lin-Manuel Miranda to create an entire world around Hamilton so that people, and especially young people, can feel like a part of the movement even if they can't get into the theater. The strategy began with the cast album. And if you're familiar with it, you know that the entire story of the musical is contained in the songs. Um, so you can get the songs and you have the whole thing. Um, other elements here, Miranda's dense lyrical accomplishments, something to geek out over and memorize. So the density of it kind of demands an engagement, uh, a memorization that almost kind of proves your loyalty to the text. Um, Miranda himself wrote 23 annotations to the show's lyrics on the website Genius. So Genius, this lyric annotation website taking the story of the show um, and encoding it in a digital way so that it can be annotated. And those annotations can be played back in sync with the music, either in the Genius website or back in Spotify. So this, the fact that the story has been mobilized in this way, that because all of the story is contained in the songs, you put those songs on a, a streaming service like Spotify, it, you get instant distribution all over the place. And sites like Genius, which allow the lyrics to move and, and, and take new forms. Um, so I actually used the lyrics um, from Genius to make another instantiation as well. Um, took several songs, broke them down into syllables, and created lyric videos, a couple of lyric videos based on two of the songs, um, and then partnered with a YouTube channel to kind of distribute them a little bit to see what would happen if mobilizing the stories in this way would get a, get a response. 
Um, so I'm going to show an example of an especially dense passage from uh, the song Nonstop. Um, just a little clip from it um, so you can see how this plays out and how you're able to actually see all the characters in this kind of dense text um, and what they're doing in a way that might not be as apparent just listening to it. Okay, so some of the responses to this after it was posted, some YouTube contents, comments. Please, for the love of God, give me all chorus pieces in this format. Uh, there are things like the little hey and the voice of Burr after 550 that I had never noticed until now, thanks. I like how it shows the lyrics by the syllables. Can someone tell me how to make these? I need to know for science. Okay, so it ended up getting, the two uh, songs that we did ended up getting over 400,000 views on Facebook and YouTube. Um, and obviously, yes, Hamilton mania is going on. Hamilton is kind of the unicorn of unicorns. Um, but mesmerizing was a word that was used often, and many comments of people feeling like they're able to engage more with the story because it's been mobilized in this particular way um, for such a dense text. So I think there's some evidence here that stories kind of want to be unstuck and that there's a response. There's something that the public would, would do with stories if they were unstuck and more available, more uh, frictionless in the way that they're able to move through the world. Right now, a tremendous amount of labor is expended moving stories from one format to another. Um, and you know, one of the most common ways is video, right? So once YouTube kind of became a thing, we have this such an excellent video distribution mechanism that all of a sudden all of culture is being converted into video um, so that it can be distributed and so that it can move in a frictionless way from one place to another. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been frustrated because I'm trying to find a tutorial and it's only available as a video. It would be so much shorter to just actually type it out and print it out so that I could follow the instructions, but I have to watch a 20-minute video to figure out how to do this thing. Um, but it's, that's happening because it is such a frictionless delivery system right now. And so all this effort is being expended converting narrative from other forms into video through fan videos, through lyric videos, through all different kinds of things. And so we could just let these processes unfold as they, as they are. But I think there's something deeper going on here. And I think if we try to enable it deliberately, some interesting things might happen. So if we were to decide to deliberately unstick digital stories. I'm not just talking about an individual story here and there. I'm talking about digital stories as a whole. Um, is this something that's even possible? Um, are there too many formats, too many idiosyncrasies in terms of how different narratives work for us to even think about attempting this? And maybe more importantly, this has got to be, have been done already, right? I mean, there's so many different formats out there for narrative, interactive fiction formats but those tend to be around a kind of parser-based simulation of a, of a literary world. Well, there's text encoding, there's TEI, but that tends to be more about kind of encoding text for publication or for scholarly study. There's hypertext, but hypertext doesn't really have a concept of temporality. There's RSS, which does have temporality, but the scale is all wrong. 
closed captioning, which is actually not bad. It's actually kind of close to, to maybe what we're looking for in terms of the resolution. It's very small chunks, but there's no real semantic data associated with it, and it's also bound up in these video standards. So what could this thing be that enables digital narratives to become more mobile? Um, so my journey to try and answer that question started really completely by accident and in a very unexpected place. Um, it started with the Nintendo Wii, oddly enough. So when Nintendo announced the Wii and its motion controller, um, I was very excited about that. And I went and got my kids Duplo, and I built myself a little Wii remote that was supposedly about the same size and shape as what had been announced and started waving it around like crazy in my office to try and figure out what kind of interactions would be enabled by this. Um, and once it was actually released, you know, hacks started to appear. So you could play with the Wii remote with your PC or your Mac and see what kind of uh, projects you could create with it. Um, I was very interested in music interactions, musical interactions, and quickly realized that in order to do a lot of musical interaction, the gestures couldn't be like waving things around. It was going to get too tiring. So I was trying to find a gesture that was repeatable, that was rhythmic, that wouldn't be tiring if you did it many times. And I kind of came across the horizontal tilt. So taking the remote and just really tilting it back and forth. Um, and you know, this was something that could be repeated many times. It wasn't too tiring. It did have a kind of percussive aspect or musical aspect to it. So I wanted to play with that gesture. Um, and had the idea to, well, what if, what if you put some music on and just by tilting, you'd be kind of waggling your way through song lyrics. Um, so every time you cross the axis, you would advance one syllable into the lyrics of the song. Um, and you could almost see a, a kind of invisible bar that the letters of the song would be hanging off of, and that would kind of track one-to-one -one with how your remote was moving. One-to-one -one was kind of the holy grail of, of Wii interaction, and it, it didn't happen very often. So an opportunity to do that was, was kind of exciting. So this all sounded good. It was pretty easy to put together. But then to create a demo of it, I had to decide on what song I was going to use. Um, and so I turned to a, a personal favorite, which is another kind of dense lyrical accomplishment um, that I geeked out over and memorized. Um, from Kurt Elling's second studio album, it's a piece called Tanya Jean, and it's actually a cover. Um, it's a cover of uh, Donald Byrd's Tanya, um, which is on Dexter Gordon's album One Flight Up. And this is uh, this, an epic song. It's about 18 minutes long um, with this amazing solo by Dexter Gordon. Um, and there's, there's a tradition of jazz vocalists kind of taking earlier standards that don't have lyrics and adding their own lyrics. Um, there's great examples of this. There's horrible examples of this. Um, but Kurt Elling does one better in that he doesn't just provide lyrics to the melody of the song. He does lyrics to the whole saxophone solo, um, Dexter Gordon's entire solo. Um, so it becomes this kind of stream of consciousness, very dense lyrical piece, uh, kind of a spiritual encounter being described. Um, it's very evocative and, again, ripe for memorization. So that, okay, this would be a good, you know, test um, to really kind of uh, demonstrate the te this technology and this project. So uh, here's a section of the original piece. And here's that same section of Kurt Elling's version of that piece with this Wii Remote performance of the lyrics happening at the same time.
Okay. So that, that was, if you can't tell by the enthusiasm, that was really fun to perform. Um, but one thing that was fun about it, you know, was not just tracking the song, there was something unexpected about it. And it was something in this trigger, this switching the axis from one side to another. And the fact that it was just kind of this non-specific command, you know, we're so used to in our interface having these very indexical and symbolic actions. You know, I'm pushing a button, I'm clicking something, uh, I, I'm doing a gesture that's very, you know, uh, uh, defined. Um, and this felt very kind of loose, non-specific, and all it was was a next command. Um, and the system's delivering the next syllable, you know, again, repeatedly um, in quick succession. But there was something about that that felt unlike other interactions that I'd had uh, with, with digital stories, um, and just powerful and just felt really good. So I kind of made note of that and started to build on it. Um, and so that led to this piece, Ruben and Lullaby, um, that Fox was talking about. So Ruben and Lullaby is a love story, uh, an interracial love story between two uh, people who are having their first fight on a park bench. Um, it was my first project for the iPhone. And you interact with the piece by tilting it back and forth to cut from one character to the other. And you can affect their emotions through gestures. So if you stroke someone's face, the screen will turn blue and you kind of calm them down. Um, or if you uh, shake the phone, whoever you're looking at will get angry. And the idea is to have both characters kind of express themselves enough that they get their point across, but not so much that they drive the person away. And so there's, there's multiple endings. Um, but really, you can just actually enjoy it as, a, as, as an audiovisual kind of experience, even if you're not getting into the game of how do I get to one ending or not, or another. Um, so I'm going to start this going here. So the score is totally dynamic. And again, having applied this tilting uh, interaction first to words, here to images, I found that it was still very satisfying. And there was, again, something about how it's a non-specific interaction. And it isn't even that as you tilt, you, one way you see one character and you see the other. Sometimes you tilt and you just get a closer view or a, diff or a more distant view of the same character. But there's something about this kind of non-specific next command um, that was very satisfying, again, um, both for words and now with images. Okay. So that piece was a collaboration with the artist Ezra Clayton Daniels, a comic artist who at that time was based in Chicago, now he's based in LA. Um, and that collaboration developed into a larger one on a project called Upgrade Soul. So this is his uh, science fiction story, a kind of Cronenberg-esque story. I'm about a couple who undergoes this experimental uh, therapy to rejuvenate their bodies, and it ends up creating these kind of uh, odd clones of themselves. Um, and I'll give a quick plug here. Actually, the print version of Upgrade Soul was just released in the last week, so definitely go out and pick that up. And it actually has just already been optioned um, for, a, for a movie deal. So congratulations to Ezra on that. Give him a shout out. Um, so with Upgrade Soul, we were really exploring the, the visual language of comics and what that could be on screens. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start this preview running in the background. So here we're no longer operating with tilt gestures, we're operating with swipes. Um, and it was designed for the iPad, although it works on the iPhone as well. 
Um, one of the things that we were interested in in Upgrade Soul is, is one, making sure that you could always go forward and back. You could always swipe forward, always swipe back. Too many digital comics we've seen take control away from the user to play a non-interactive video sequence. And so you're kind of promised this interactivity and then it's yanked away from you. Uh, and it happens over and over and over again. So we wanted to make sure you can always go forward and back. But the other thing is that all the sound in Upgrade Soul is musical sound. Um, some of it can be, can kind of function as sound effects, but it also functions as music. So literally every time you swipe, you're getting a new musical sound. It might be a note or a phrase. So we can encode melodies as you're going through and swiping through the piece. Um, and again, finding that even though it wasn't a tilt, this still this kind of non-specific swipe, give me the next thing, was still really powerful and compelling because you didn't know what was necessarily going to happen. You were probably going to get a new panel, um, but it could just be a sound, or it could be a new piece of dialogue showing up, or it could be an animation. Um, and working on it in the context of a piece which had such connections to print actually helped me to realize that what this thing is that I was so obsessed with was a page turn. It was nothing more complicated than a page turn, um, but made digital. And obviously this wasn't anything new. I mean, press return to continue, press spacebar to continue. I'm, I'm using software right now that I'm pressing the arrow button to continue. This is not new, but mobilizing it at a musical scale, at a performative scale, um, where it wasn't just stepping through chunks of text because it had to be parsed out that way, um, brought something different to the table. And I began to look at other works that I had done in the past and realized that this mechanic was kind of running through as a common theme through a lot of the things that I had done. Um, so in this example, Strange Rain, um, this is an app that I did before Upgrade Soul. Um, it's a rain stimulator that basically has a story inside it where you're tapping the screen to get the thoughts um, of a character who's kind of going through an existential crisis. Um, so you're tapping to get individual thoughts or you're dragging to get sequences of thoughts. And realize that this is the same mechanic. It is a situation where the user controls when and the author controls what. Um, and there's a tension that's implicit in there, especially when you deliver it at a kind of musical scale where you're talking about phrases and notes um, every time you tap the screen in, sub, in Upgrade Soul, you get a little phrase, like a little two-note, two-chord phrase um, that loops, and the piece develops as it loops. Um, so this idea of you know, discrete linear sequences with musical elements in it was operating at a low level in all these different pieces, and I started to kind of put the pieces together. And started to think about, especially with uh, Strange Rain, I got a lot of requests from people who wanted more stories. Um, you know, there's one story that's kind of baked into the piece, but they wanted more stories, they wanted to add their own stories, and I started thinking about how this would be accomplished. Um, but I didn't want to build a whole system just for that one app. Like, I would like those stories to be able to live and move, maybe from one app to another, just so I didn't have to rebuild this facility over and over again. So I started thinking about what if there was a format that organized narrative content into steps? which in some level is so simple, it seems like the most idiotic thing ever. Like, we're just gonna make a format around things being in lists and happening in a linear order. Um, do we really need to create this? Um, but again, like I had said, looking through these other formats, I couldn't really find anything that did exactly what I was looking for. Um, so I ended up uh, coming up with this format, just very ad hoc, uh, called Stepwise. It's an XML-based format. I put it up on GitHub and started to realize that one of the things that was compelling for me about it, and which I thought could have some potential, is not just that it's organizing narratives into discrete steps and sequences, 
um, but that part of what was important was saying who was doing what at what time. So who does what when? Um, the idea that, say, in a complex you know, text like the Hamilton example, we're not just saying what words are being spoken, we're saying who's spoken, who's speaking them. Um, we're identifying that semantically so that uh, anyone processing something in this format would know who was saying what when. Um, and that's information that's not transmitted in a video, in a fan video or a lyric video. Um, you don't get that information about who is saying what at what time. Um, and that that actually became even more powerful if you expand that who to include instruments in the score. So if there's a piano playing while this character is saying X, well, that piano is also a character, and it is saying something at a particular time. Um, or even more abstract concepts, what's happening in the lighting, or maybe there's theoretical ideas. Um, this goes back to some of the vectors work where we're trying to enact academic theory in a database and kind of bring it to life. Um, so people are speaking, instruments are singing, ideas are having influence, all of these are fair game to be chronicled in a format like this. So in thinking about how you would build stories uh, in this format, I realized, or I started thinking, well, you probably want something kind of like a garage band, but it's really for multimodal content, right? So instead of tracks, we would have characters. Uh, and we could put in those tracks, texts, images, video, audio, all different kinds of things. Um, but I don't have the resources to build GarageBand, um, so I came up with the next best thing, um, as many others before me have, which is the spreadsheet. So um, Google Sheets um, to save the day. So the spreadsheet format in Google Sheets was actually perfect because we can organize uh, columns for each character and rows to represent steps in time. Um, it's cloud-enabled, cloud and there's an API that you can use to get data out of it. Um, so it became a really uh, critical way to kind of play with this uh, idea of how to, how to build stories in this way. Um, and that led to the creation of a site called Stepworks. Uh, it's at step.works is the URL. Um, and this is really a place to kind of play with this idea. Well, what if digital stories were more mobile, um, could be more easily uh, moved from one platform into another or from one stage or location to another? So I'm going to show you a little bit about how the site works here. I'm going to find my cursor. Ah, okay, it's going to... Let me quit out of this for a sec. Okay. Um, so just to give a quick demo. So the way the site works is it has a series of stages, which are basically templates, um, ways of presenting stories. Um, so you can pick a template. There's a few that are already here. I'm going to pick this one called text messages. So basically it displays any multi-character dialogue um, as a text message chain. So here's, uh, you might recognize it from the spreadsheet I was just showing. This is the classic Abbott and Costello, who's on first. So as I tap the keyboard or click, I'm stepping through this dialogue. Okay. Um, so let's say I want to make my own um, that fits into the same format. I can just hit new. And if I've got a Google account, it'll prompt me to create a new copy of this starter document that comes preloaded with uh, a few different characters, four different characters. I only need two, so I'm going to delete two of these columns here. And we're going to call character one Amber and character two Alicia. I like using my cousin's names. 
Um, so this first one is, we're just going to say, hello, Alicia. And we'll delete that. And we'll say, hi, Amber. How are you? I'm fine. Okay, you see why I don't have a career in film. Uh, my writing is not the greatest. Um, so then uh, let's go ahead and publish this document. And let's follow the link in the document back to the site. Okay, so now we've got our scintillating dialogue going here. Okay, now, let's say I want to add a little bit of a musical score to this. All I need to do is add another character. We're going to call this character Piano. And let's just do uh, a major chord here. C, E, and G. And then the next step, we'll do uh, just a low C. Then I'm just going to copy these. So it'll repeat. Okay. Let's go back and hit refresh. And Okay, so we've got our musical score, but you've noticed something interesting is going on, which the piano is a real character. So the notes that it's playing, it's actually saying in the text chat. So this probably isn't what we actually want. So I can add a little extra item here to the end of here that's hidden. Okay, so that means this won't actually speak it out loud or show it as dialogue, um, but it will still play the notes. So here we go. We've got our amazing musical score. Okay, so again, just a quick demo of how Stepworks works. Um, but the one of the interesting things about it is I can now go to stages and I can pick another stage here. So let's pick vocal grid. This is the one that was used for the Hamilton example. And if I hit load, I pick my demo. And now that same story is rendered in a different format, but still with the music playing. Okay, and there's obviously other stages that you can load the same story into and uh, see it play out in that way. All right, so let me jump back to Keynote. Okay. Um, every piece that you create in Stepworks gets a custom URL. So you could take that and share it online because it includes the URL to the Google Sheets document um, and you know, build and play and share in that way. You can also get access to the underlying XML that is being generated behind the scenes. So um, through all this work and kind of playing with this and experimenting and seeing what the possibilities might be, an, an ethos kind of started to emerge that I began to feel strongly about. Um, and I realized that in my own work, um, I'd seen too many cases where uh, uh, stories got stuck and couldn't be further transmitted, usually because the technology died. Um, but also I saw other, other aspects of storytelling that were being revealed by this that I also wanted to, to encourage and kind of participate in. So I, I kind of call this the good guest, good host ethos. Um, the first part of it is be a good guest and let your stories go on the road. So let your stories become guests in other contexts. Okay? That changes the way that you write. So if you are writing a story that depends on all of these audiovisual effects that are only available in the original context that you debut that story, that story is not a very good guest. It's going to go other places, but it's going to make all these demands of that place that it goes, just like a, a poor guest in real life. 
um, and it's not going to be well received, uh, and it may not work at all. The, the content, the kind of essence of what you're trying to get across may not be communicated. And in this, by the same token, be a good host. Give other people's stories a place to stay in your work. Okay, so when you're creating uh, a format, a stage, um, that your story is going to live in, well, think about other stories that might want to live there too, and what might their needs be. Stories that might have a different time scale, or different types of content, different numbers of characters, um, different elements like that, different formal characteristics or content characteristics. Um, so be a good guest, be a good host. Let your stories go on the road and give other people's stories a place to stay. So how might this work in practice? So all of this is you know, still very, very early and rough. Um, so uh, I'm going to give you some rough examples, um, one of which is uh, this NASA Insight project. So I had the, uh, the good fortune of being selected to be part of a NASA social team. Um, this is a group of 40 people that they pick uh, to promote a given launch or some event that's happening at NASA. So in this case, it was the launch of the Insight uh, mission to Mars, the most recent mission to Mars that should be landing uh, in November. Um, so, you know, we got to have a tour of Vandenberg Air, Air, Vandenberg Air Force Base, we got to go to the launch pad and see the launch, all of which was amazing and wonderful. Um, and we were also supposed to be posting, you know, to social media about what was going on. So I thought, okay, this is going to be a good example to try Stepworks kind of in the wild and see how it performs. So in trying to figure out what I would do, I realized that on the NASA site for the mission, there's a timeline. Um, that shows all the missions to Mars, no matter which country did it, and the outcome. So, you know, in the beginning, the outcomes are all pretty bad. Like, this thing blew up, this thing failed, this went off course. Then you have the Viking mission, which is the first successful landing, and then after that, you still get a lot of things blowing up and going off course, but eventually you get into where we're at now, where there's a lot of successful missions. And so that in itself has kind of an arc to it. Um, so I kind of took that information and all the outcomes and put it together in a piece using uh, Stepworks um, and basically decided to sonify the data by turning each mission into a musical note. Um, so uh, each mission is uh, represented by a note and I quantize the missions by year. So if there are four missions in a year, you get a four note chord. Um, and then I kind of set, the, set these chords and notes in a kind of cosmosy, you know, synthy, uh, sci-fi kind of setting. Um, and created this piece uh, that was an Instagram piece um, where you, you'll see all of the outcomes of all the missions happening in sync with the, the music as it plays. Okay, so the whole history of Mars exploration in a few, few notes and chords. Um, and then I turned it into sheet music. So one of the things that, that, that I think you know, was successful about this experiment is that it showed how if NASA is being a good guest in allowing the story of these missions to go out in, let's say it was a standardized format, I actually had to manually translate it, um, but let's say it was a standardized format, it would have been easy for me to pick that up to add music to it, to add the visuals to it from all the missions. And then if there was another stage that turned that into uh, notation, that could also be done automatically. That wouldn't be difficult. And so you've got a story that was never designed to be a performative story becoming that and kind of taking 
uh, transforming from one shape to another um, in these different media and these different formats. So another example, uh, the good, being a good host, um, is a piece that I developed. Um, it's a documentary piece, and it's the kind of the first long-form piece that I tried to do um, with Stepworks. And it's called Rewriting, Relearning, uh, Creative Collaborations in the Digital Humanities. Um, so it's a documentary about the Vectors project. Um, a lot of these collaborations between designers and scholars were pretty impactful for um, everybody involved. And so I went back to some of the folks that had worked on Vectors and just talked to them about their experience and collected ephemera from the design process to kind of use to illustrate uh, what it was like. Um, so I'll uh, open up and show a little bit of that now. It's actually on the site. Skip the introduction. I think it just spoke to a longing that I'd had for quite a while. I was just very alienated from doing so much administrative work at the university. Um, it just seemed like a, a, a gay patch to a, a world I wanted to be more a part of. My, I think my daughter was just, just a baby. Uh, and I was running a graduate program and teaching full-time and feeling overwhelmed. Everything was pushing me not to do it. But yes, I knew that, that collaboration was hard, but um, also really productive and important. And it just feels vital to me. Okay, so Karen Kaplan here is talking about kind of the impetus for her to decide to join the Vectors Project and apply. Um, so a little bit about how this is structured. Um, you'll notice that the piece is, one, it's unfolding. I'm actually pressing keys on the keyboard to advance it step by step. Um, and you can replay by clicking any of these items. You can replay the audio. Um, obviously, we're bringing in video and imagery that are ephemera from the, from the design process for some of these projects. Uh, the reason why it's broken up into these chunks is actually I've split it on edits. So every place where I edited the original audio to get rid of an um or an ah or for clarity, that's actually embedded as a, a scene. So sometimes you'll get kind of strange, you know, little fragments of things. But I like the fact that that labor of the editing, which is usually completely effaced when you're uh, watching a documentary, is still in here. So uh, if these were actually, you know, indexed by time, you could actually reconstruct some of the original interview. Um, the other aspect is that you know, I designed this format for this piece, you know, so we're announcing the names of the people, we're, show, we're seeing a little bit of their bio, we're seeing their image, kind of like you might see in a more traditional documentary. Um, but it also, you know, other people might want to use this for their own projects, documentary or otherwise. And so, uh, because this is based on this uh, open format for delivering these stories, you can load other stories into it. And, and so I put it to very, very different uses. Uh, one of which I will show here. Let me skip here. Okay, so when James Comey's book came out, he was doing a lot of interviews um, and did one interview. I can't remember which outlet it was. It's kind of describing this conflict with him and Dick Cheney about surveillance. Um, so I thought, okay, this would be an opportunity to take something that is described as an interplay between two figures and actually you know, build it uh, as something that you could uh, deploy within the same format. 
So just an example of how a very different kind of story could still work in the same format. And basically, this is totally open. So you could go and load whatever story you want into this uh, stage, essentially, and uh, put your story in there. So again, trying to be a good host, trying to think about um, other people's content that might want to work in this place, in this uh, stage, and, and trying to accommodate that. Okay. So, this is a, uh, a flyer that I put together uh, for the Game Developers Conference this year. Um, because I was trying to go and promote this idea that, you know, game developers are creating these amazing worlds, amazing environments with characters in them. They're really making theaters, you know, but they're theaters that can usually only perform one story. But if we were to change the way we thought about these environments so that we could accommodate other stories, um, perhaps, you know, not, 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 uh, not based in the same mechanic as the game itself, but in a very simplified, step-by-step -step way of say, uh, characters saying and doing different things, that we can actually open up uh, some really interesting possibilities here. So if you're thinking about your game as a theater, um, what would it take for you to just open up a little bit so that you could let other people's stories in, and maybe even let your story um, out into the rest of the world and not tie it so tightly to a particular interface and a particular mechanic? Um, will you allow other shows to be performed in your theater and will you allow your work to go other places? Some of the things I think this might enable is some new economic models. Um, one for writers. Um, it's really difficult to be a writer in a digital space um, if you don't have a lot of technical skills um, and you don't have a team. Um, but I think the ability to kind of distribute stories independently of the interface could open some interesting possibilities where you could see someone actually monetizing a story that they'd written that actually isn't tied to a specific interface, but works in many different interfaces that support that same standard. I think also it might often offer new opportunities for developers um, to create environments that are really just meant to host stories. They might not even contain an original story of their own, but they're designed to be evocative places where stories can play out and be staged and might have secrets in them um, that are you know, activated through certain kinds of actions and things like that. That could be a model in and of itself which again would also reduce the amount of labor and development and time it takes to get a project out to the world. So what of this exists now? I mean, I've been showing you some demos, but just to kind of be clear about it. Um, so there's a, there's a GitHub library. Um, and again, there might be some confusion. Stepwise is the name of the open source library. Stepworks is the website and the kind of services that kind of sit around it. Um, so stepwise, it is open source. There is a JavaScript version and a Unity version. Um, the Unity version is kind of interesting because when there's uh, two sample scenes in it, one of which is just a de basic demo, another which will actually pull stories from the Stepworks website and show them in a menu and you can pick one and start to play it. Um, so kind of hopefully giving folks a head start on how to play with it. Um, and then, you know, what, if this is of interest to you, what, what can you do to participate? Well, uh, Stepworks has been used successfully in classrooms and workshops. Um, there's a wonderful piece um, that uh, Zach Whalen did. Uh, well, he didn't do. He taught the class that was a workshop using it. And one of his students, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Brantley, did a piece called Two Hours With You that is uh, basically about anxiety. And what she did was she composed nine different voices, basically, in this one character's head that are all having a debate about when they're going to wake up for class and whether they have an assignment due and whether they actually completed the assignment or not, <clears throat> and then kind of drifting into some other kind of issues and questions as well. 
Um, it's a, a great piece. And again, it's delivered in this format, the same kind of vocal grid format that we saw you know, for the Hamilton and the other examples. But you could just as easily load it into any one of the other stages and render it in a completely different way. Um, you could even potentially see uh, bringing it into a Unity environment and having each of these voices kind of auto-generate as a character in a space and have you know, a dynamic camera that's following the characters as they're speaking and, 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 and going, through the, going through what they're discussing. Um, so definitely recommend going to this piece is on the StepWorks site. Um, many of you can probably relate. <laughs> and check that out. Okay. So again, being a good guest. Um, if you're working with narrative content, consider making that narrative content in a format that can go out to the world and can be reused and restaged in different ways. Um, let users potentially export their past through the content um, so that they can take their own experience and do something with it. Um, relive it, restage it, do something interesting with it. Um, be a good host. Think about if you're running a platform, if you're creating an environment where stories are told, support speech from multiple characters. Um, playback of musical notes. Environmental features, things like time and date and weather and location. These are all things you can do in the stepwise format now, um, which could have a really interesting effect uh, and an environment that supports it. So a little bit about the future. Documentation, I really need to write some better documentation. Um, there's, there's some there, but it's pretty technical and, and needs to be much more friendly. So that's my first priority as I'm moving forward with this kind of work. Um, distribution, working on getting more stories, uh, more uh, folks that support this format. Um, eventually an authoring tool, not GarageBand, but maybe something in between a spreadsheet and GarageBand, so it's a little more friendly. Um, and who knows, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in mobilizing stories and platforms around issues of social justice, around issues of marginalized communities. So if there's something you see that intrigues you about this, please get in touch. Um, I would love to help. Or if you're interested in, in doing a class or something like that or a workshop, please get in touch. I'd be happy, happy to help. So I'd like to end on this note, uh, almost literally a note. Um, my first programming language was a musical language called Forte. Uh, my dad brought this software home uh, not long after we got our first Apple II, uh, which is our first personal computer. And basically, it allows you to type notes uh, in, as code, and the computer would play them back. It was monophonic. It could only play one note at a time. So it was very limited. Um, but my dad, uh, who played the recorder, he had some box sheet music and entered some of those pieces. And I was pretty amazed by what was possible, even though it's a pretty laborious process and doesn't look very fun. Um, Again, this is an early predecessor to a format, which got standardized later, um, called MIDI, um, that enables computers to talk to each other in a musical way and enabled a whole bunch of uh, developments, lots of different types of musical software, eventually leading to things like GarageBand or Logic. Um, you know, the MIDI standard, looking at just at the Wikipedia article, prior to the development of MIDI, electronic musical instruments from different manufacturers could generally not communicate with each other. Um, the standard allowed different instruments to communicate with each other and with computers, and this spurred a rapid expansion of the sales and production of electronic instruments and music software. The creative possibilities brought about by MIDI technology are credited with helping revive the music industry in the 1980s. Um, and a little footnote at the end, educational technology enabled by MIDI has transformed music education. So all this to say, I, th I think we need a MIDI for digital storytelling. Um, maybe what I've shown here tonight is part of that, maybe not. Um, 
But what I'm interested in is seeing the stories and seeing your stories become able to move more freely, to be engaged in the world in many different ways, um, to have that kind of unstuck quality that allows them to make a greater impact in the world. I hope some of what I've shown today um, can play a role in that, um, but at the very least, I wish you all the best in your own creativity and stories and in making works that impact the world. Thank you. There's a slide that's supposed to be up, so I can switch to that. Whoops. And often what happens 
Um, even now, and I think we all understand that there's many stories and they're all proliferating and they're happening across all of these different channels and platforms and so on, it can be really hard to see outside of the blinders of what uh, large organizations, corporations have sort of set up for us as the norms, right? That typically what comes out of the package is the default, and most of us, including lots of journalists, sort of go along with the default. And so I think that's one of the things that I most appreciate about this work is the way in which it challenges default and is consistently um, using these um, uh, 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 sort of gestures, these forms of the site of what you know, what could this do? What might this do? How might we um, tilt the phone one way or another and actually activate a story and drive a story forward, not by words, but with music and with images and with um, sounds and so on. Um, so, I said that, I just want to put that out there first um, as sort of like how this, how this kind of practice really is a practice of possibility and a practice of experimentation and all this would be um, well served to sort of uh, be inspired by that. I think that's what seeing work like this does for me, is it opens up this thing of like, oh yeah, like this tilt this way could lead to this next step in the story, or it could do all these other things too, right? You suddenly start to think of these other possibilities. Um, so the only part, oh yeah, and I did want to say, I just love, so I teach data journalism, and I just love that you made a spreadsheet narrative and musical. Because <laughs> I'm constantly trying to tell my students why data is important, and I think it's Kind of boring, but too boring. So, um, so I'm going to totally use subways. Um, so, um, so the one place that I wanted to um, push back a little bit um, is along this idea of um, stuckness or um, uh, frictionless stories, or um, stories that, that, or this idea that stories should always circulate outside of their containers or outside of the things that they have. Within which they've been designed and have designed, been designed for them to be inhabiting. Um, and so, like looking at uh, works like uh, Public Secrets, um, I wouldn't call the, those stories stuck um, so much as I would call them embedded and, and really situated uh, in collaboration with their interface in some way. And so, um, for me, I'm skeptical of the idea that. Uh, we would want all of our stories to be freely traveling all the time in all these different contexts, and that's what I think a lot of um, our aspirations for data are right now. That it would be just like hopping around all the time, and people could just always use it. But what gets lost in the process is um, context, embeddedness, situatedness. Um, whereas, in fact, what I see in many of these works, like Public Secrets, like Ruben and Lullaby. Uh, uh, like Strange Rain, like Upgrade Soul, um, those to me don't seem at all stuck, but they're actually like deep care and time and investment have been um, mobilized in order to embed these stories like, and weave them deeply into their interface and in a way that it's not stuck. It's like actually this like beautiful, time-intensive, laborious thing. <laughs> Um, but it's a way that they've been fully embedded with their form in a way that entirely makes sense too. And that might not make sense to, to take them out and you know, just export them uh, somewhere else. So that, that's the place where I would push back and say that I don't think actually that all stories need to, um, need to travel. And let's see, did I want to say anything else? Yeah, but I get the urge, because I think the urge is generous. Uh, 
Um, and I think as software developers, as I'm back in software development, and uh, I think as software developers, we always have the urge to like abstract things and to um, make things reusable and to build um, abstractions and sort of universalizations. Um, but so maybe sometimes it's okay just to build um, the one really amazing, really laborious, time-intensive thing and like let it live and, and sort of sustain it and maintain it there. So that's my comment.
apply this to their own returns. We want people to be able to say, I'm going to take this thing because I care about it, but I'm going to tell it in a way that I think is appropriate, it's appropriate to myself and my own experiences. Um, and I think this is something you see in technology as well. I think there's a lot of systems which get designed for a very, very specific use case and work really well within that. And specifically, I guess, within decentralization, a lot of community mesh projects have this where, you know, the definition of the project is really kind of amazing and people do really great work, but then it doesn't really get propagated because the tools get defined from a very specific environment. Um, there's a really wonderful um, kind of network, which I know Sasha has worked with, um, called the Equitable Internet Initiative in Detroit. And one of the things that they've done really well is, as well as defining kind of things about how they make technology, also actually defining how you make a community that can produce technology. And I think this kind of meta discussion around how do we make communities that can tell stories? How do we kind of think about stories that are worth telling? Um, and how do we communicate them in a way that can be relevant to like three people or can be relevant to like hundreds of people? It's like, yeah, really essential to this kind of work. It's kind of why it's so lovely. Um, anyway, um, thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Um, I don't actually know anybody who's working on that, but I think it's a fabulous idea, and I think it's the kind of thing that, that exactly would be enabled by a system like this, where you could start to do analysis across you know, multiple stories in a similar format and start to see you know, where those connection points are. You know, in Scalar, we try and do a microcosm of that in that as you import media files, you can reuse them, but that's just within one work. Um, and we've gotten many requests from people like, I want to connect multiple works together and see what these you know, relationships might be. Um, so I, I think that's definitely something valuable to, to explore. Other questions? I'm also a real down in the not line, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, and I, 
I actually first learned about that project through um, like a curriculum that was developed uh, around it um, for people to, to explore it in the classroom and to have conversations about the history of racial injustice and incarceration in the US. And, um, but my question is actually um, different. It's about sort of, I guess I, I find myself wondering to what degree is what you're posing, to what degree do we need a system or standard or tool? And what degree is it more about sort of principles that we want people who are building different types of storytelling platforms and interactive experiences to adhere to? And the reason I was thinking about that is because I'm, um, I'm thinking about all of the ways that fans and fan culture are constantly um, you know, doing these types of things that you're nodding towards or suggesting that we would like to be able to do. So the game, you know, the game as a stage where people could um, could bring in other stories or bring out the stories that they've lived in gameplay. Um, there's the whole you know, history of machinima and people doing that and self-organizing, um, whether it's in singular multiplayer environments to go and act out works of theater or do political actions or and then at screen capture those and share them with the YouTube and so on. So my question is really about that, is like to what degree is it so important to build a particular tool or system or to what degree is it more about encouraging all types of platform creators and maintainers to make it as easy as possible for um, for people to, 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 to do that type of work. Can everybody hear me without the mic? Okay. Um, so yeah, great point about machinima. Um, you know, and I think these kind of uh, almost like folk art ways of bringing narratives into different spaces and using them and staging them in, in, is really important and totally a part of this whole discussion. So, yeah, I mean, if all that came out of this was people thought a little bit more about being good guests and good hosts, that would be great. Um, you know, and I, I think many of those practices are still fairly inaccessible to novices. And so while there's a group of people who have the skills and are able to do that kind of work, that it's still fairly demanding and not really intuitive and easy to do. So I think making that easier and more accessible could have benefits. Um, I want to thank both of the respondents. Um, I really appreciate your words and your comments, and especially the comments about, uh, about whether stories should move, um, that there's cases where they should and there's cases when they shouldn't. Um, one of the things we're working on for Scalar right now is uh, and, uh, 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 experimental in integration with the Mukatu uh, project, which is all about um, indigenous peoples and First Nations peoples who are explicitly don't want their stories to go into all different kinds of contexts. And it's, it's a moral imperative that they don't, that they're not accessible um, to everyone. And so building some of those kind of controls and, and warnings and information into platforms so that it becomes clear when a story should, is intended to circulate and when it's not intended to circulate. Um, so I think that's, that's going to be key. Thank you. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I do have one response to you who asked the early question that I made in front of me. Uh, but in terms of using machine learning to analyze uh, patterns in certain writing genres, Sunspring is that AI generated screenplay that came out in 2016 with starring Thomas Middleditch and basically uh, they process all of these um, science fiction screenplays through machine learning and then output and output. 
basically this really absurd, strange screenplay. And then uh, they directed it and filmed it, and it came in the film you can just watch online. But one of the uh, artists and researchers working on that is Ross Goodwin. So if you're, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, um, we can talk about that also. <laughs> Um, my question for you is um, more about the accessibility of these tools. So part of my oration is working on an interactive fiction storytelling uh, software, and it isn't super friendly for novices, so I was wondering what sort of, I don't know, what sort of methodologies you use, I guess, to develop um, stuff works as a really user-friendly, novice-friendly uh, resource. Mm -hmm. okay. um, well, definitely Google Sheets has been kind of a blessing and a curse in that way. Um, so everybody's familiar with spreadsheets, so on one way that's pretty accessible and it's pretty easy to understand, okay, columns are characters and rows are steps. Um, Stepwars can do more than that. It can do randomization, it can do looping, it can do kind of nested groups and things like that. Once you start to get into that territory, it quickly breaks down as being easy to use because you start getting into kind of arcane commands. So that's where I really do see it as a transitional uh, tool, that it's something that's going to evolve into a more dedicated uh, piece. But until then, I'm trying to make it as easy as I can and learning more about actually how Google Sheets works to see if I can make it even easier uh, while we're in this kind of you know, limbo period. Um, you know, one of the things with Scalar and the other tools that I've worked on is that we've always tried to build tools that are motivated by what authors and creators want to be able to do, rather than trying and do a build it and they will come. You know, we're like, I think this is what you want, and I made it, and I put all this time into making it. Now, why don't you want it? Um, you know, that doesn't often work out. Um, but by kind of being intimately involved with the process by which these things are created, um, you know, you start to see the trends and the interests of the folks who are building these, uh, building these pieces, and hopefully you can kind of craft the tools around that. So that's, that's one approach. Hi. Um, I had a question around, one thing that struck me about being able to transport these stories is that you could put them into uh, wildly different formats that would, on another layer of accessibility, like wouldn't require vision to get all the details, or wouldn't require hearing to get all the details. Um, I was wondering if you, uh, if people have sort of done that with this tool, or if that's sort of a direction you're kind of thinking of, of how you can maybe eliminate some of the sensory constraints or add more in um, mm -hmm. with this kind of traveling story. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not something that has been done so much yet, but I think it's very much a part of what it could enable. So um, one example I can point to is the transition from vectors in those projects, which mostly were built in Flash and were very kind of closed, to Scalar, um, which is a, an open source system that's built on open standards. Um, Many people who'd seen the work with, with vectors, which is very intricate and laborious and designed very bespoke, then saw Scalar and they're like, this is so boring, it's so bland. Like, what happened to you guys, you know? Uh, what, what, where'd the pretty go, I think was a quote. Um, so while we've tried to make Scalar prettier over time, and I think we've done that, um, there still is, it's a very conventional interface compared to these very, you know, bespoke interfaces. Um, but something like the knotted line is actually built on top of Scalar. So we wanted to show that you can scaffold 
you know, kind of the more custom work on top of the standards-based stuff, if you just take the time to kind of put the standards in place. And I think that speaks a little bit to what you're talking about, where um, you could create a completely different sensory modality for a particular piece, one that requires a lot of very specialized gear, or one that requires very little specialized gear, or that translates something from text into audio or things like that. So I think there's, I think there's potentially you know, a lot of applications in terms of accessibility for stories that could be more automatic than they are right now. I mean, I think one thing that could be interesting there, and it's something we've tried to explore with Scalar as well, is, you know, every Scalar project has an API in it. So all the content you put in, you can get back out in an automated way and in a standards-based way. So there's nothing stopping anyone from saying, give me all the illustrations from this paper and turn them into a gallery. Or, in, or if the author were to say, okay, I want to create a, a shorter version of this that's geared for a general purpose audience as opposed to the academic audience. And those could all live inside the same work. Um, and you know, again, it's the things that I think are enabled by digital storytelling that we don't see as often, but are definitely there and could be enhanced by, again, this ethos of generosity of, I want to make a piece that different audiences might be able to encounter and, and experience in different ways, uh, and really putting the thought into that in advance so that you come out with something on the other end that could actually have the chance of doing that. Uh, I actually have a question. Um, I'm, I'm interested in um, impact on storytelling. So there are stories in our stories, as you know, and Proust is different than Dickens, and they're different than journalistic uh, items from the same period, and so on and so forth. So technologies tend to have an impact on the kinds of stories that you can tell. And I'm just curious. Uh, oftentimes, they open up new possibilities, but at the same time, they oftentimes shut down old possibilities. So have you thought about you know, the gains and the losses both and how those uh, work across this new, new approach? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, like any, anyone pushing a new technology, I'm enthusiastic about the gains, and I don't really want to think about the losses. Um, but I think, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing in enabling in my work are very tight compositions of word and image and interaction. Um, that where every note, every word, every syllable, I mean, it's, all, it's a very, uh, you know, akin to poetry versus prose, you know, are very loaded and laden, um, and you can compose it in that way. Um, the longer form piece, you know, the documentary piece was interesting um, in that it, it requires a different level of attention and a different level of engagement. Um, I think in general it is probably going to, you know, privilege shorter chunks, um, uh, uh, again, on the scale of the musical phrase or the musical note um, over longer pieces. But it doesn't have to. That's really not kind of built into the technology. I could see that becoming a, a, a pattern of use. Um, one of the, one of the uh, pieces that I'm 
looking at releasing in the format is actually, I, I have a collection of 64 Associated Press stories that came out uh, just before the second Rodney King verdict in the 90s. Um, and I find them fascinating because, you know, there's this almost real-time progression of trying to chart, you know, people's fears about what might happen if this verdict came down versus that verdict, trying to balance all these, you know, things going on in the city, you know, exhibiting certain biases and kind of hiding other things. And you see it kind of play out in this journalistic language that evolves. There are paragraphs that start as short paragraphs and then get expanded as new information is added and then contract again. Um, and, you know, so that's an example of a longer set of texts that I'd like to release in this format to see what people might make of it. Um, uh, so I, I think in a lot of ways it's too early to know what might be lost. In, in most cases, I feel like with new technologies, we don't really figure out what we're going to lose until we lose it, um, which is unfortunate, but I think kind of the way it goes. Right, thanks so much for the presentation. Uh, it's, it's great to see the works and then frame in this trajectory as you're moving into the Stepworks uh, platform too. But my question is also about the content. I mean, because at the end here, you also you have uh, the activist, and then in a lot of the works, they're dealing with social, cultural kind of uh, themes that you, you know, that you've described a bit of, and even the sensibility, you know, you know, kind of lush improvisational jazz sensibility that falls into the work. And so I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the, the, the content and how some of those kind of uh, cultural and social concerns have, uh, have yeah, integrated uh, into the work. And then also, if that's at more of a content level for you, or also you feel like some of those themes emerge through system building as well. Um, so yeah, I, I find these talks kind of tend to go one way or another, and I find it's hard to, to find a balance between content and form. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the interest in, in social justice, in politics, uh, I get actually from my mom, who was herself an artist, a portrait painter, um, never was interested in really finding an audience outside of her own practice, um, but found that practice to be tremendously healing and impactful for her as she was trying to kind of create a community for herself. So she painted uh, mostly African-American faces of singers and entertainers, um, but where the faces are cropped very tightly so the face becomes a kind of landscape. And so as I was growing up, I got to see that process firsthand as she was doing the research, um, learning more, gathering material, honing her technique, and so that just, for me, is kind of baked in as, you know, concerns and things that I'm interested in. One of the greatest gifts of the Vectors process was getting the chance to collaborate with scholars who are doing such incredible research in these areas, um, far beyond any, any of my knowledge, and getting to kind of absorb some of their thinking as they went along, and trying to find a form um, that would do justice to the research um, and kind of represent it in that way. And Public Secrets and Blue Velvet were both very impactful for me in those ways, and kind of exposing me to, to new things I hadn't thought as deeply about, nearly as deeply about, as the folks I was collaborating with. So I find that it's a, it's a combination of the concerns I get from my own background, as well as the people that I work with um, in collaborations that kind of keep animating that and bringing those topics, you know, into the work. And, you know, for me, those are things I'm thinking about all the time, so it's natural for me to kind of bring them into the projects. And I, I, I seek out collaborations where that's going to be a big part of the collaboration because it's something I'm interested in personally. I think uh, it's time to call it quits, and I want to thank Eric for uh, a wonderful presentation, rich material, and 
thought that is produced already that we can already engage with. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you.